Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Drosky Show. As I speak, it's Thursday, August 12th, 2021. I uh, picked up a newspaper just to give you a sense of what was in the headlines today, and I picked up the business section. So it's kind of weird what's on the front page of the New York Times business section. Here we go. The game show Jeopardy has chosen two new hosts, ending a month-long search to replace Alex Trebek. Alex Trebek. So that's the headline in the business section of today's New York Times. And guess what, folks? That headline has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm about to talk about. So, yeah, great moment of relevancy on the Ben Jarofsky show. All right, moving ahead. As I always do with a bonus interview, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce him or herself. So no more, no more waiting around. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hey everyone, my name is Sarah Lazar. I am a reporter and web editor for In These Times, a Chicago-based labor magazine. And I am also the co-author of the new left-wing political thriller called Testimony. And I co-authored it with my late father, Peter Lazar. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, welcome to the show. And uh, so, yes, everybody who's out there in uh, uh, Ben Jarofsky land knows in these times very well, we're essentially a, a lefty talk show that appeals to lefty Chicagoans. But we do have some centrists. So, hey, centrist, you could read a, a, a book written by a lefty. And everybody knows in these times because Miles Kampflassen is a regular on this show. And it was Miles who sent me the email about you, Sarah. Wow. And uh, I've never... Let this cat out of the bag. I'm gonna let it out for this interview. I'm an obsessive uh, reader of fiction. I'm up late up. I don't. I'm up late every night reading fiction, and I uh, devour, uh, in particular, mystery books, crime novels, noir, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so when I heard that you had written a book, a noir book, I was like, oh my god, let's get her on the show. Let's get her talking about it. And uh, so let's just start at the top. You wrote it with your father. Talk a little bit about that co-writing a book with your father. Yeah, so um, my father passed away in 2018 with a draft of a novel. And I spent two years following his death 
editing and adding to the manuscript, viewing it as a writing collaboration. Um, it was a pretty intense process. I basically spent most of my free time for two years just locked in a room trying to wrap my head around this new genre that I was walking into. Um, and the product is Testimony. And Testimony is a thriller about the corporate capture of utilities regulators, the buildup to the Iraq war, and about the way that public-private partnerships, quote unquote, are used to enrich the powerful and take control away from the people. And one really interesting thing about my dad is that he was a utilities regulator for the Illinois Commerce Commission for 20 years in Springfield. He came from a really interesting radical history. So before that, he was a big labor organizer. He protested the Vietnam War. He organized in Chicago garment factories for the Socialist Workers Party in the um, late 70s and early 80s. He was part of the back to the factory socialist movement where there was an effort to sort of reindustrialize and bring in workers into the movement. Um, and he got really burned out by that experience. There were things he learned from it, but things he found really hard and then got this job as a utilities regulator. And he never lost his radical critique of society, but he always really struggled with questions of what a better society looks like. Um, and my dad and I often had political debates and discussions. And so the book is a way to carry on those discussions because he wrote the first draft and then I finished it up. Um, and so it contains a lot of the themes that he and I would talk about all the time. Now, uh, sounds like you're really close to your dad. Uh, when did he die, did you say? In, in November 2018. 2018. And um, so it seems as though, based on what you said, that your dad was open about what he was up to in the 70s. Uh, I, I know people who have similar tales, and they're very closed about it. You know what I mean? They're always afraid, like, who wants to know? And I, you don't need to know. And, you know, for good reason, because the federal government was chasing them and they could have lost their job. They, you know, the, the red scare goes on and stuff, but your dad was, he was open and he talked to you about his uh, life in the sixties and the seventies. Oh, we talked about it all the time. Um, and you know, it's interesting because he would often draw on that experience to like push me and challenge me in my politics. Um, one of the things that he always said is that if you're going to ask people to take risks, for a political movement, you have to be very clear about what it is you're fighting for. And he would often criticize me for having politics that he thought were a little too vague or squishy. Um, and he, you know, <laughs> he uh, he um, he was really a, a very very close comrade. He was someone with whom I disagreed sometimes, but who I always always talked to about politics. Um, and you know, he, I think that he was very unresolved about the experience that he had just throwing himself into organizing and activism and that he was always searching for a movement that he thought was on the right path. Um, he, you know, he was someone who, who was really willing to walk the walk and make pretty huge sacrifices for what he believed in. You know, he didn't believe that politics is something you do halfway. You do it all the way if you're going to do it. Um, and then he wound up at the Illinois Commerce Commission um, where there are 
serious issues of corporate capture. And he tried very hard to be ethical. He tried very hard to not uh, sort of give in to the climate of subservience to companies. Um, but he had kind of a tough time. And, you know, one of, one of the things I did for the book was I looked over old testimony. Um, so testimony is something that you file as a regulator as part of the regulatory process. And you, you could actually look at my dad's old testimony and you can see where his boss circled and crossed things out in red ink saying, oh, you're being too tough on the company. You're being too aggressive. You need to tone it down a little bit. So you're growing up and uh, your dad sounds like a cool guy. I never met him, obviously, but he sounds like a really cool guy. Uh, a lot of kids, they have an instinct uh, to rebel against their parents, okay? So did you ever, ever have a moment when you were a kid growing up where you said, you know, Dad, really, you're really kind of hard on George W. Bush. I think he's a wonderful president or anything remotely like that. You know, I, I didn't really. Um... You know, if anything, I rebelled against, um, if, if anything, I like went more to the left of him or sort of like rebelled against the ways that he encouraged me to uh, be reasonable and sort of clearly spell out my politics. I mean, you know, I was very lucky to grow up in a home where really great books filled the bookshelves. We, you know... Karl Marx and um, Isaac Deutscher and all of these sort of seminal writers. We grew up reading that stuff. And then I grew up talking with my dad about um, what he does and does and doesn't think have worked about various socialist experiments. Um, you know, and then um, in the in the early 2000s, I got pretty involved in the global justice movement um, that that was a time when there were big summit protests against the World Trade Organization and the World Bank and things like that. Um, and I kept talking with my dad and I think, you know, I think my dad thought that stuff was really cool, but I think he thought that the the movement felt a little vague politically. He had a hard time like pinning it down. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely wasn't a case of someone who rebelled by being conservative. I mean, gosh, that's my biggest fear. I have a baby now and I would that's a fear I have about him or, or even worse, he could become like a Pete Buttigieg character and just become a neoliberal. Um, <laughs> I, hopefully that won't happen. Wait, hold on. I gotta, I gotta interrupt you right now. Now. Okay. Wait, bigger fear. MAGA or Buttigieg Dem. What's your biggest fear? Uh, so Kid becoming MAGA or Buttigieg Dem. Damn. That was a little glib. MAGA is worse. MAGA is definitely worse. But neoliberal okay. is also bad. <laughs> I think of uh, people like um, Pete Buttigieg and Kamala Harris, whose parents were like more or less scholars and thinkers than they were. So that that's why that comes to mind. But but to be clear, being on the far right is worse. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so I think I just feel really lucky that I grew up talking about politics with my dad a lot. But I, I always really respected his opinion. Now, the love for noir, where did that come from? Did your dad also pass that on to you? So the way we arrived at the noir was actually really interesting. Um, so my dad's initial draft of a novel covered a lot of ground, and it was all really great. But when I read through it after he passed away, 
buried within there was a really tight, really good thriller. So what I decided to do um, with a lot of help from my partner, um, Adam Johnson, who was a big help with this project, what I decided to do was sort of carve out the other parts and just focus on the thriller component. Um, and by making that decision, I had already I had already been a fan of the thriller and noir genres, but I learned a lot more about them as part of the process. So the whole time that I was um, working on the book, I was, uh, you know, watching movies and reading books that were really, really good thrillers um, and sort of trying to immerse myself in the genre. Um, but one thing one thing I really like about the thriller genre and the noir genre is that they're often about ordinary people, very flawed people who are taking on big systems of corruption. But in 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 those genres, oftentimes the protagonist is law enforcement. Um, so we tried to turn that piece on its head a little bit and to think about, okay, what if we throw that valorization of law enforcement aside and instead try to focus on an ordinary people, an ordinary person taking, working with a ragtag crew of people who are also ordinary and flawed to take on systems of capitalism. So, um, and so that was what we tried to do within that genre. And uh, so give folks a little sense of sort of the, uh, the setting and the plot and how it, what, what unfolds uh, in the book testimony. Yeah. So the book takes place in 2002 during the height of war on terror jingoism. And the protagonist is a burnt out former radical who is extremely economically precarious and settles for a job that he thinks is his ticket to stability working at the Illinois Commerce Commission regulating utilities. Um, but then a gas pipeline explodes. It's a pipeline of the company that he's supposed to be regulating. And through the process of trying to figure out what happened, he has to confront really big questions like, how far am I willing to go to win justice in this situation? And do I still believe in my ideals? And he works with a hodgepodge crew of other people who have their own struggles. We have um, Allison, a sardonic, uh, hardworking journalist for a local alt-weekly. We have his coworker, Greg, who's um, sort of shy and skittish. We have Angelo. He's the sanitation worker at the Illinois Commerce Commission who always rags on our main character in a friendly way, but kind of joking around, giving him a hard time. And so the book really rejects a one great man view of how society changes for the better. And instead of one great man, we have one okay flawed guy working with other okay flawed people <laughs> to take on a system of corruption and greed much larger than them. And we tried to throw in a lot of twists and turns and make it a real page turner too. So, you know, one of the things I truly believe in is that writing should be fun and that you should find ways to smuggle in really solid political content, but do it in a way where people don't feel like they're being taught a boring lesson, but instead want to keep turning the pages. Because if you're 
story is boring, then the political content is kind of moot. Now, uh, when you were uh, growing up, did your uh, dad uh, and or mom feed you a uh, great noir or that, that like even movies uh, that have resonated with you and um, impacted you, uh, not just in your uh, fiction writing, but in your journalism? Yeah, so um, my dad read everything. Um, he read mysteries and noir. He also just really loved great literature. Um, what, you know, one of the books I read somewhat recently that he recommended was Life and Fate by Vasily Grossman, which is sort of this great Russian saga that looks at the Battle of Stalingrad, that looks at life under Stalin, that looks at Hitler and the Holocaust. So um, my, my dad was an incredibly intellectually hungry person who um, truly just devoured everything. He was incredibly intellectually curious. I, I wouldn't say that mystery and noir genres figured in more strongly than other stuff. He more just passed along a certain hunger to, to learn and to read. Um, however, I can definitely speak to some influences and some writers who I've really appreciated while working on the book. Um, so there is a really awesome community of left-wing thriller and mystery writers who showed me an incredible amount of solidarity and support. Um, so Bill Fletcher wrote a book called The Man Who Fell From the Sky, and it's a really, really good book that I recommend. Um, Kate Jessica Raphael, is someone I know from uh, organizing out in the Bay Area when I used to live there. Um, she's a longtime Palestine solidarity activist. She lived in Palestine for a bit until she got deported from the country. And she wrote a um, Palestine mystery series that is really good. Um, again, her name is Kate Jessica Raphael. Um, and then let's see, Aya de Leon is a really awesome writer um, based in the Bay Area. She wrote this book called A Spy in the Struggle that I just finished reading. Um, she She's really cool. She's a part of Movement for Black Lives and works specifically on Movement for Black Lives climate work. And the book looks at FBI repression and surveillance of Black environmental movements, um, but does it in a really like fun mystery thriller sort of way. And, you know, FBI surveillance of black freedom movements is a very heavy, tough topic that she's able to just like make it so engaging and to like fi find ways to both be serious, but also playful. For example, there is just like really fun romance going on that, you know, pulls you in and allows you to stomach some of the tougher stuff that happens in the book. You know, listening to you talk about uh, these novels, I'm starting to think about this. Um, I'm going to throw out a theory, which may be wrong as soon as it uh, exits my mouth, and you can feel free to tear it down because it's literally popping in my head as we speak. But I have a theory right here listening to you. Most of the uh, detective novels that I've read, mystery novels, whatever, noir, whatever you want to call the category, uh, are at least center left. I can't think of any that I've read that go to the right. And while you were talking and, and about these various um, novels that you've read that have influenced you and uh, your father's life and how he influenced you, 
I was thinking that so much of what a detective uh, has to untangle and uh, confront are secrets that the powers that be want to keep from us. And so it just thinks instinctively that most of these secrets would cover up wrongdoings by powerful people who are probably using their power to get wealthy, wealthier and repress uh, other people in the process. And so that there's just a natural inclination on the part of mystery writers or detective writers, if they have any politics at all, to be at least center left. That's a theory that just popped into my head right now uh, as I was listening to you talk. What's your thoughts about my theory? So I appreciate that theory. And maybe this is a little self-serving, but I do feel that the noir and thriller genres are particularly well-suited to left-wing politics. And part of why I think that is because that those genres force you to explore opaque large systems of exploitation and wrongdoing and harm. Um, anyone who's done any left organizing or journalism has spent a lot of time thinking about horrible systems like capitalism um, and has spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to break down that system in a clear way so that it's not some big abstraction, but so that people can understand it um, and understand the, their personal stake in fighting that system. And so working on my book that I wrote with my dad, I felt like there was a lot of room to, through a story, um, examine those systems. You know, in this case, it was examining how corporate uh, corporate control of the regulatory process harms ordinary people. And ultimately, the book sort of makes the case for uh, public democratic ownership of utilities, which there are plenty of campaigns around the country for public democratic control of utilities, including in uh, Chicago regarding ComEd. Um, but so part of the challenge was like, how do you explain what the regulatory process is like in a way that's not going to put people to sleep? And how do you clearly lay out the stakes? I think any any leftist who believes that what's wrong with society is systemic um, would be really drawn to trying to work in that genre. And it's part of why I think it's so exciting when genuine leftists take on the noir and thriller genres. But I will say that um, it's not just about breaking down horrible systems. It's also about using the genre to examine how people can work collectively to fight back against those systems. So. Unlike science fiction, unlike fantasy, the noir and thriller genres are somewhat constrained by reality. So you can both be idealistic, but also be realistic about the horrible systems that people are working within. And I think that maybe that's something that would separate out um, non-political thrillers from truly left-wing thrillers. You know, I've read noirs and thrillers where you learn about these big, evil, opaque systems, but then ultimately the solution is a single crusader trying to take on those systems. The the ending isn't always such that that you win when people come together and emphasize the collective over the individual. But left-wing writers can tell a different story. They can say, hey, you know what? 
things get better, not when we have one single hero, but when we band together and uh, sort of believe in the collective power of regular folk. That last part uh, really diverts from traditional thrillers, the notion of a collective good, uh, because to the point you just made, I've read so many uh, countless uh, novels thrillers, noir, whatever you want to call it, mysteries, detective stories, uh, in which the, the writer is presenting just a very jaded, cynical view of the world where it's pretty much hopeless uh, and that the, the protagonist comes to the conclusion that it is hopeless uh, and he or she may be victorious in one minor way to help one individual who he or she's trying to help get justice, but that overall there will not be uh, justice because it's just a cruel world controlled by powerful people who certainly have more power than you do. That seems to be the overriding cynical view of most or so many uh, novels that I've read. So the notion of having an inspirational noir novel that fires up the left uh, to believe in collective action is kind of like contrary to everything I've ever, I can recall reading uh, in... Uh, or see, like Chinatown. You ever seen the movie Chinatown? You, you, I'm sure your dad must have loved Chinatown, no? Um, so I, so that is on my list of movies to watch, and my dad did love that movie, and several people have mentioned that when they heard about the book, but I haven't actually seen it yet. Oh my goodness! All right, well, uh, it, it, but the point in Chinatown, it's ho utterly hopeless. Yeah. <laughs> it's utterly, it totally seconds uh, the theme. Uh, that I was just talking about. So I, I'm not. Can you can you name any other examples of um, of left of center uh, detective stories or thrillers, noir, whatever you call it, in which there's a theme of collectivism triumphing over the individual? Yeah, yeah. And so you, uh, just to gloss something you were saying earlier, um, yeah, I think I think that experimenting a little bit with what collective action could look like is a way to turn the genre on its head. It's, you know, so it's like, what if you have all of the ingredients of a regular noir, but then you throw in a union getting involved? Or what, what if you throw in big protests against the Iraq war and millions in the streets all over the world? Um, and how, do, how does that change the way that you're talking about how the ills of our society get um, so I guess the, another example that I want to shut out is just going back to um, Aya de Leon's book, A Spy in the Struggle. It's fresh on my mind because I just read it. Um, so this is a real subversion of the detective novel because the main character is someone who is a Black detective who is sent to infiltrate a Black environmental movement. And then slowly but surely starts to think that maybe the Black environmental movement is more correct about their political vision than her bosses. And then she has to sort of deal with that and grapple with her own um, uh, life story and sort of her own personal philosophy. Um, the really cool thing about that book is like you go inside of activist meetings, you hear the voices of ordinary people responding to things like environmental racism in their community. You hear from young people um, who, 
you know, who are, who talk like teenagers and sound like teenagers, but are grappling with really interesting politics, you hear organizing strategy and philosophy um, just by virtue of taking readers inside of those meetings. Um, that is really emphasizing this idea that you don't actually uh, do things alone ever, that things are always collective um, and that society is really going to get better by people banding together. So that, you know, that's one example that I would really cite. I'm definitely going to uh, go out and get that book uh, since you've recommended it now twice. Uh, and further uh, solidifying my theory, and I'll throw this at you, by chance the other day I happened to see a clip of the right-wing talk show host, uh, uh, Ben Shapiro, and he was on the Bill Maher show, and he was um, uh, pimping, I mean, promoting his book uh, that just came out. I cannot, I uh, apologize, I cannot remember the name of his book. Uh, and so Bill Maher, I don't know if you know who he is, but he, you know, he wants to pretend like he's really open-minded, uh, everybody, no matter where they're from, that's his thing. And uh, that's all right, you know, it's all good. Uh, but anyway, so he's doing his best to try to, <laughs> he actually said, uh, Sarah, that he read the book, which I didn't believe. I go, that's a lie. You did not read that book. Uh, and he goes, uh, but the problem with your book is that it criticizes lefties, but you don't say anything about the right, you know, and, and uh, the intolerance of the left is what your book is all about. And so uh, what Ben Shapiro then tried to do is state the case that the left is more damaging to ordinary people in this country than the right, which, as he was saying, it was completely and utterly preposterous as a theory that he was putting out that even Bill Maher, who's always trying his best to, you know, show right-wingers that he's really cool with them, couldn't abide by it. And so I'm now thinking that it really can't be a good noir writer uh, pimping for the right because you can't concoct a realistic example in our country about how lefties are hurting ordinary people. Do you follow what I just said? Yeah, I do. I do. You know, that's true, but also I think that there are right-wing fiction and film projects that create a sort of fantasy land where, you know, the big bad enemy is some, like, ACLU lawyer who is trying to tell people that they can't pray, you know, or something like that. Like, that's totally true, That, but but the way to get around that is to just be completely divorced from reality and to feed readers and viewers, like, distorted <laughs> view of reality. I mean, I also think that Bill Maher is, like, platforms people who don't deserve a platform, who already have a huge platform, and I'm definitely not a fan of sort of his, the choices he makes around who to talk to. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole like right-wing Christian cinema industry out there that just paints this absolutely bonkers picture of what reality is. Um, so I think that's how the right gets around it. Um, you know, I do think one challenge for the left, and it's definitely a challenge for me, is, you know, I've definitely been accused before of being kind of preachy and sloganeering and sanctimonious. So figuring out what it looks like to deliver a left politics that is more accessible and doesn't feel like you're just sort of whacking people over the head with your politics, but instead drawing them in and inviting them to sort of 
engage certain ideas. I think I think that's actually one thing that fiction can be really, really good for. And um, I, you know, I in the process of writing this book, I reached out to a lot of people, including Bill Fletcher, who I mentioned before. He wrote The Man Who Fell from the Sky, and he's a really great um, longtime labor activist um, who I totally just knew through his work in the labor movement, and then only recently found out that he had written a fiction novel, but he is incredibly invested in mentoring and supporting people who identify as being on the left, who want to be fiction writers, because he thinks that the left just needs more tools for sort of drawing people in and reaching beyond the choir. Because the right is doing it. The right has a huge apparatus for cultural work and cultural production. And with, with a lot of money behind it, because Rich people generally don't want to fund the left because the left wants to um, dispossess the rich people of their money and redistribute it to people who are poor. Um, but the right, on the other hand, every right, every rich person wants to fund their films and fund their books um, because their policies serve rich people. And so we are up against a huge cultural production apparatus on the right. Um, and I, you know, I think that the left needs to try to somehow um, beat beat them. Yeah, I'll give you. A, here's what you got to do, left. Stop being so cheap and stop and start supporting people on the left. Don't get me started, Sarah Lazar, about how cheap the left is. They never want to pay for anything, you know, from newspapers to what have you. Don't get me started, Sarah. Because I could go on and on. But I, I, I will say to the right, you're, it's no joke. And as an obsessive reader of uh, bestseller lists, I can tell you this. The, the, when the right wants to promote a book, they just buy up huge amounts of advanced copies. And that m automatically puts it on the top ten list. And not anybody, anybody reading the damn thing. Nobody's reading Ben Shapiro's book. Who, I, Bill Maher is not the only one who is pretending he read Ben Shapiro. I'm wondering if Ben Shapiro actually read his own book. So, so the point is they buy it up. It's just like you said. Take a look. You you look at the asterisks that the, the New York Times puts on its bestsellers and with bulk copies of books have been sold. I'm saying, that's the right, man. They support them. So some right-wing flack writes his book, Pimp It for the Right, and right-wing people buy it. They, that's their way of rewarding, oh boy, the writer. He gets the money, and they get to pretend like they have this mass movement, and they maybe pass it out at parties and stuff. So you're right. You're, the right is far ahead of the left at, um, at helping out its its people who carry its message. And you're also right. When you went on that riff about being self-righteous, I got to tell you, so many of your uh, brethren from In These Times, when they come on my show, are always giving me grief, Sarah, about how I'm shaming MAGA. And I've just a general shame of voters because at my age, I can't take them anymore. I think your father probably would have agreed with me, by the way. And um, so I was listening to you talk about uh, not preaching to the choir. And I was thinking of uh, our, our mutual friend, Miles Canfalassa and Micah, who's always telling me this. Uh, stop shaming MAGA voters. They're good people. Um, Anyway, uh, I, I have to say, as a, a father who's got a, a daughter's roughly your age, that's a really great thing you did for your old man, a great tribute uh, to take seriously this work he had done and hadn't finished, and taking the time and the energy and the effort and the love to uh, bring it to life. 
And uh, I've been unable to read it yet. Otherwise, I would have been reading sections on the show. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get a copy in time. But I just want to say that it just sounds like a very enticing book and a great read. Uh, and I wish you nothing but success with it. And just a great tribute to your father. That must have been very um, fulfilling to you as the daughter to see uh, his life's work come to life. Am I correct about that? Yeah. You know, I actually... Um, my dad was a great writer and taught me everything I know about writing. And I think that he had many, many books in him. And I'm so glad one has seen the light of day. But I think he had a lot, a lot of books in him. Um, and, you know, it's funny. My dad was my biggest supporter and my biggest critic. And I actually keep asking myself what he would have thought about the final product. Um, and I think he he I think he would like it, but I think he would have found things that could have been better. For example, he hated sentimentality and we allowed just a little bit of sentiment, not very much, but I keep wondering what he would have said about that part. Um, you know, it's it's hard to know, but I do I do think he would have been excited about people reading it. Um yeah. So yeah, my dad was a my dad was a great guy and um there's just like so much to his legacy. I don't think that just this book really captures it. Um, for example, he there was there are a lot more political issues and things that he worked on. He was extremely concerned about climate change. Um, you know, that was the one thing. Anytime, anytime there was not a story about climate change on the In These Times website, he would email me or text me and say, "Why is there nothing about climate change?" Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, I, <laughs> Wait a minute, man. How can you react to nothing? You know, <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. Oh, man. yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, God. That's funny. You know, yeah. You know, it's like, it's like, well, Wait, you're reacting to nothing. There's like nothing you're really reacting to except for the absence of something. And it's, uh, well, he father. he got fathers reserved the right. He does reserve the right, and you know his the case that he made is that um, there's absolutely no excuse not to be just sounding the alarm over and over and over about climate change because it's this huge disaster we're all careening towards, and um, nothing is being done to address it. And then, you know, when I read the IPCC report that came out earlier this week, um, that was just so terrifying. And I always think about my dad in those moments and. He was obviously totally right about that. Um, but yeah, you know, the point being is that my dad was like a yeah. no BS, very critical person, but in a good way, in a, in a way that's like challenging you to be your best and do your best. And he held himself to that standard. And I like, I um, wish he had gotten to write other books too. Um, but, um, but, but I'm glad that this one is out. All right, Sarah Lazar, one more time, uh, give the name of the book and the publisher and tell folks where they can get it. Yeah, so the book is Testimony. It is published by Strong Arm Press. The authors are Peter Lazar and Sarah Lazar, and you can buy it at the Strong Arm Press website. You can buy it on bookshop.org, which is the indie alternative to Amazon, and then it's also on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Uh, well, one day you're going to be so fabulously successfully as a fiction writer and you're going to tell Amazon, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you only put it on those lefty ones and I'll be like, right on, Sarah Lazar. <laughs> uh, anyway, 
Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to come on the show and talk to us. Thank you so much. That's great. Sarah Lazar. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Take care.